Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to my YouTube channel. My name is John Campia, and this is a companion video. What are companion videos? Well, I'm awfully glad that you asked. Every day on the John Campia Show, Monday through Friday, we take the second half of the show to take your live comments and questions that you guys send in via the tip link that's down in the description of this video. You guys click on that there, or you enter it in manually at www.streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip you're tipping to the show and supporting the channel and getting your comments or questions read on the shows if they're if they're appropriate for the shows that is and we're very very grateful to you guys for that however even though we take the second half of the shows to take those questions we normally don't have enough time to get around to all the questions that get sent in but i want to make sure if you supported the channel and you sent in those questions that you don't have to wait too awful long to get them answered so we gather up the unused ones we address them here on companion videos so Without any further ado, let's dive right into it, shall we? And we're going to get things started off here with, as soon as I'm able to get this thing up on the screen, here we go, Megafun writes, Hey, John, the unreliable sources say uh, Ken, Kendare Blake's novels in every generation from the Buffy universe is to be turned into two TV series. That's interesting. Uh, be great to see something from that world if it happens. However... If it wasn't for Whedon's controversy, I'd prefer to see old. Pardon me. I'd prefer to see older Buffy show similar to Black Widow travel around the world, going after the vampires slash demons, etc. I don't want to watch another teen series with vampires and demons. Understandably, Geller doesn't want anything to do with the Buffy world. All right. Thanks a lot for saying that in, man. And first of all, let me just be very clear. I am not familiar with these novels whatsoever. I was never a huge Buffy fan. Uh, this may sound, I know people get mad at me when I say this, I was always more of a, uh, uh, I was always more of a angel fan. I liked, I liked the spinoff show angel more. I wasn't really big into Buffy, but I know a lot of people were, but man, I got to tell you, um, the, the topic of Joss Whedon is a very sensitive one for me because look, I, I'm not going to deny I have been a very big, huge Joss Whedon fan. Huge Joss Whedon fan. Of his work? Absolutely. But also of him as a person for the limited amount of times that I was able to get together and chat with him. Actually, one of my favorite pictures of all time in this, you know, doing this business, doing this industry, is this one with me and Whedon when he came to my party at, uh, at Comic-Con. I've always liked the guy. I did. And so you can imagine for somebody like me, who is a unabashed, huge Joss Whedon fan, how disappointing, uh, I think that's the kindest word I can use, disappointing to hear a lot of the people who used to work with him. And we're not just talking about the odd disgruntled gaffer here. They, I mean, some of the real names that he worked with coming out and and saying not such great things about him as a person. Now, granted... Nothing anybody said ever sounded like anything illegal, but it's still tremendously disappointing. What re that really got highlighted was Sarah Michelle Geller, who never says anything. Like Sarah Michelle Geller, who says nothing after a bunch of other people came out and started saying things, including one of her castmates from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, basically came out and. I, I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was somewhere along the lines of, I never want to be associated with his name and blah, blah. It's like when Sarah Michelle Geller, who never says squat about anything, 
Um, I got to tell you, it's one of those times where I, as a fan, feel very disillusioned and very disappointed um, about that. So it's uh, it's a very it's a very touchy thing for me. Like I'm a big big fan of Joss Whedon's work, but very very disappointed to hear about all the things that have come out. And so whenever I hear about stories like this, it it's a little a little little tender, a little tender. Uh, anyway, that's just that. All right, next up, uh, Min Tran writes also. In the earning call, Adam Aaron of AMC, the CEO of AMC, has acquired six with a possible four additional theaters, uh, closed high-earning theaters. Uh, he acquired four, six closed-down high-earning theaters, mostly from the closed Arclight chain, also the Grove chain, uh, in various places throughout the country. Yeah, we talked about that on the John Campy show a little bit more, uh, a little bit earlier today. And, and I'll say this. Three of the four things that they have done are absolutely idiotic. The fact that they're raising ticket prices when they're trying, they should be trying to get people to come back to the theaters now. They're raising concession prices when they should be trying to get people back to the theaters right now. And they're limiting the number of show times when they're trying to get people back to the theaters right now. The one thing that they did that I am actually totally okay with is acquiring these theaters. These are prestige locations. Uh, and if they don't take advantage of these in places that can make some money, one of their competitors would. So it's actually one of the things that I actually, uh, I get behind. All right. Uh, an anonymous viewer just tips, tips in $10 just to be supportive. Thank you. Anonymous viewer. I appreciate that very much. All right. Next up Min Tran writes, on either Jim Cramer or Charles Payne this morning, I believe AMC said it's projected to have positive earnings by Q4. If both AMC and Cinemark does start to have positive earnings by the end of the year, how significant is that for the movie industry? Okay, so first thing, understand that by having saying that they're going to have positive earnings does not mean that the year of 2021 was profitable for them. It just means that, hey, we hit a undisclosed period of time, a week, a month, whatever. We're in that one week or that one month, or maybe if they're really lucky, one quarter, the amount of money they made exceeded the, the amount of money they spent. Now, at the end of the year, they're going to be in the red. They're not going to make up for all the money they lost in 2021 from a financial and from a business point of view. They're just not going to, not from doing their business. But they're saying they think by the end of the year, they can be operating on a daily basis for each day. We're making a little bit more money than we're losing. If they can do that, if Regal can do that, if Cinemark can do that, if AMC can do that, that bodes very well for the movie industry. That being said, projecting and claiming and predicting that you're going to be profitable that you're going to be having positive earnings by Q4 is still a guess. And you got to put a huge if on top of that. So we'll see. But if it does happen, and that's a big if, it's a very, very positive sign. It's a very positive sign. All right. Chicken Powder writes, thinking about those people that wish movies fail or suck, do they, do they like that? Or are they like that with everything else in their lives? Do they go into a restaurant and think, God, I hope this steak tastes like shit or getting on a plane and think, geez, I hope this plane crashes and burns. Yeah, listen, I agree. I will never understand the mental weakness of some people that want a movie to be bad. I'll never understand that. Like it, it says something about your pathetic life. I mean, there's there are franchises of movies that I hate. 
But if they're going to put out another one, I hope it's good. I hope it's good. Or, you know, when, when DC fans, let's, let's be more specific, when the Snyder Bro fans want a another DC movie to be bad, I'll never understand that. When a Marvel fan wants a DC movie to be bad, I'll never understand. When a Star Wars fan wants a Star Trek property to be bad, I'll never understand that. I'll never understand that. I'm miserable, so I want other people to be miserable too. Like, that's how mentally weak some of these people are. I'll never understand it. I will absolutely never understand it. Anyway, uh, next up, Godzilla2000 writes, Hey, John, Rob, and maybe Kim. Well, none of them are here right now. Uh, I want to give another shout out to another 90s movie about uh, another 90s movie called Absolute Power. I remember this, the Clint Eastwood Gene Hackman one. Uh, Directed by and starring Clint Eastwood. It's stacked with a great cast that includes Gene Hackman, Ed Harris, Scott Glenn. I love Scott Glenn. uh, Laura Laura Linney and Dennis Haysbert. You're in good hands with Allstate. Um, Yeah, I... Yeah, I'm going to admit something. Listen, I love a lot of Clint Eastwood movies. This isn't one I particularly love. Now, granted, it's been about 20 years since I've watched it. So it's been a beat since I've seen it. But this is one. Gene Hacken plays the president. Uh, Clint Eastwood is a thief. And, you know, he witnesses, you know, something. Anyway, um, I I remember thinking it was okay. I remember liking it. I don't remember loving it, but that's just me. But good on you for calling that one out, man. That's a good one. All right, next up. Uh, Sergeant Ward writes, you and Rob talked about the future of movie productions, maybe going uh, the mid to low budget route and stop making $200 million movies. Maybe studios could use the maybe studios could use the to their advantage and make the few big budget movies, actual event movies instead of the norm. Well, I mean, yeah, but I get you look back to 2019. When, like, I believe, my, I might be off by one or two, I believe in 2019, the most recent box office year before the shutdown due to COVID, I think there was like $11 billion films. I could be wrong about that number, but I think it was it was like 9, 10, or 11. It was something like that, right? That's a lot of money. And that money then pays for those little low-budget movies. Like only one out of every five of these low budget movies actually turn a profit. That means they can't be self-sustaining. So to finance these movies, the studios take the profits from their big successes and they finance the mid to small level thing. So I I just don't know how that whole equation is going to work. I'm just not quite sure how that's going to work moving forward, except, you know, what what the streaming demons want. The streaming demons just want everything to be on streaming so they can just make their movies as cheap and as shitty as possible. And it doesn't matter. They just need to make them good enough as you know, Jason Blum and that one producer were saying the other day, they just need to make their movies good enough. They don't actually have to put a lot of effort into it. They don't have to put a lot of resources. They don't have to give their directors the actual support that they need and give them the best teams and the best staff or all that. They just don't need to do it. Just, just crank out, some shite, you know, maybe once a year, put out a high profile, good movie. And then we can make the rest of the 20 or 30 or 40 of them just shitty. And it doesn't matter. And it's, it's, ugh, I don't know, man, we got to, it's going to be interesting to see which way this industry goes, dude. All right. Next up. Dr. Film writes, 
I like Rob's take on the future of the industry. Superhero movies are not going to last forever. Uh, so how about studios become more like Jason Blum and have profitable story-driven movies? <laughs> it's so easy. Just make a profitable movie, right? It's so easy. Anyway, and have profitable story-driven movies and occasionally have big movies come out. I'm slightly more optimistic. See, here's here's the problem, Dr. Phil. Here's, here's, or Dr. Phil, here's the problem. Only about one out of every five of these mid-to-low-budget movies actually ever turn a profit. Now, <laughs> Bloomhouse has done a very good job with that, but Bloomhouse is in of itself the exception. They're not the rule. They're the exception. And on top of that, all we ever talk about with Blumhouse is their successes, but they've had failures. They've had more failures than successes, but their success to failure ratio is still pretty good. And therefore we talk about them a lot, but that's the thing. They're kind of the exception. So when you say, Hey, just make profitable movies. Well, yeah, that, that's like saying, well, just buy the winning lottery ticket. There's just, just stop, stop buying the losing lottery tickets and just buy more lottery tickets. Or it's like watching the Super Bowl. You know, just, you know what they should do? Score more points in the other team. They'll win a lot more Super Bowls if they just, why don't they just go and score more points in the other team? Well, it's, it's much easier said than done. It's much easier said than done. And, I know it sounds weird to say, but Rob was pointing this out the other day himself. These bigger budget films have a higher ratio of profitability than the lower budget films do. And it's that profitability that pays for a lot of these lower budget things. So yeah, it's great to say, ah, oh, just make just make profitable movies. What do you think they're try what do you think they try to do with every single movie, brother? They're trying they've tried to make every single movie they make profitable. But what's going to make a profit? What's going to make a profit? And that's the big thing. And the higher budget stuff has a greater ratio of profitable movies versus money loss movies than the lower budget ones do. I mean, you can go look it up, look up any report you want. So I agree with your formula, make profitable movies but that is what they're always trying to do. <laughs> just, just score more points than the other guys. Why is this so hard? Just score more of the basket goals. Go, go sports. Go do more of the basket goals than the other team. Why don't they just do that? It's easier said than done. It's easier said than done. Anyway, thanks for sending that in, doctor. I'm, I'm just busting your balls a bit. We're just having some fun here. Thanks for sending that in. All right, next up. Ben Rayner writes, Hey, John, I hope you're doing well. I am doing well. Thank you. Just watch Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, one of my all-time favorite comedies. It's been a long time since somebody asked or brought up uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Uh, just watch Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And by the way, if you're talking about the Michael Caine, uh, Steve, uh, I was almost said Steve Carell. If you're how about the Michael Caine and Steve Martin version of it, uh, it's a remake. It's another one of the movies that should always come up when people shit on remakes. Dirty Rotten Scoundrels should be brought up. Anyway. I just watched Dirty Rotten Scoundrels for the first time. I loved it. 
It was so funny and smart. I love Martin and Kane. Also, didn't see that ending coming. Great small role by Ian McDiarmid, the emperor himself. Ian McDiarmid. He actually has a role. It's the only other movie I really know that he's in. Anyway, Ian McDiarmid, 4.5 out of 5. Thanks for everything. Bring on the filthy. Guys, I don't know what to tell you. Except say, if you have not watched Michael Caine, Steve Martin, the classic Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, what are you doing? You, you owe it to yourself to sit down and watch Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Grab a friend or two that's never seen it before either. Get some food. Sit down and watch Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. Watch Michael Caine and Steve Martin light it up. It's honestly, it's one of my favorite comedies of all time. I, it's probably in my top 10 favorite comedies ever. I love that movie. I'm so glad you had a chance to check it out, Ben. All right. Next up, uh, Vaccinate and Live Hard writes, Army Hammer Solution. Spend millions to reshoot his scenes in Death on the Nile with another actor. Or, for a couple of bucks, scratch out his face with a digital marker and then get Kenneth Branagh to re-record his dialogue using his Russian accent from Tenet. Yeah, listen, this... The Army Hammer uh, Death on the Nile conundrum is one of the biggest Rubik's Cubes right now in, in Hollywood. What the hell does Fox and Disney do with Death on the Nile. I mean, Army Hammer's name is complete mud right now. And and that sucks because I'm a very big fan of his work. But his name is mud right now. And they're just sitting on this movie now. And they don't know, do we put it on Disney Plus? Do we try to put it in theaters? Do we just brush it under the rug and write it off as a loss? Because here's the problem. It's not like Army Hammer's just in a couple of scenes in this movie. He's in a lot of this movie. It ain't going to cost just a couple of million dollars. They'd have to invest a whole shit ton of money into doing something like that. And then they're asking their questions. Would we just lose less money if we just threw the movie away? I mean, instead of digging themselves into the hole even more, trying to put all this money into it, and it's always going to have this controversy hanging over its head. I don't think they've even figured out what to do with this movie yet. It's going to be it's going to be interesting to see which way they go. All right, next up, B. Wayne, New York writes, John, last weekend, my friend had a uh, TSS. Guys, please don't write in acronyms. Uh, had a TSS watch party. I opted for the theater. Oh, you probably mean the Suicide Squad. Guys, please do not write in acronyms. Okay, anyway. Uh, last weekend, my friend had a the Suicide Squad watch party. I opted for the theater, and I'm so glad that I did. But he said 20 people showed up to watch The Suicide Squad on his 85-inch screen. So that's about 40 people worth of missed theater revenue. I fear this happens a lot, killing the movie business box office. Yeah. I mean, it's not the problem. But yeah, that where somebody has HBO Max and invites five or six friends over. I know a lot of you guys wrote in to me to say, hey, you know, I, I have it, and plan a night with me and my boys or me and our friends or whatever. And a bunch of people just get into a house. So instead of like six tickets, seven tickets, 12 tickets, 20 tickets being sold, plus any repeat business, you know, they lost out on all that. Again, it's not the de facto reason, but it's, it was one of those contributing factors and good on you, B Wayne for supporting the movie and uh, going to the theater to see it. Good on you. All right, next up. Not, by the way, not that there's anything villainous about anybody who stayed at home to watch it. I mean, you know, you already know what I think about that. But I mean, if that's what you chose, that's what you chose. I'm just saying good kudos to you, B. Wayne, for supporting the movie, actually supporting the film and going to see it. All right. Godzilla 2000 writes, 
Hey, John and Rob. Obviously, Rob's not here right now. I want to give a shout out to a great actor who isn't really talked about much, which is Brian Cox. I love Brian Cox. I absolutely loved him as Stryker in X-Men 2. That's where I first honestly really took note of Brian Cox was him playing Stryker. He was great in that and been a huge fan of his ever since. What's your favorite role he played? Um, well, it's probably Stryker. Whenever I think of Brian Cox, I think of Stryker. He was also in that one um, um, uh, Hannibal. He was in that one Hannibal thing. Um, he was also really good. I really loved him and Helen Mirren's chemistry in Red, uh, the one with Bruce Willis. Probably the last movie I ever saw Bruce Willis actually try in. Retired, extremely dangerous. Had Bruce Willis, John Malkovich, Brian Cox, Helen Mirren. I'm trying to remember who else. Anyway, so I really like him in that. But like right now, Brian Cox is ripping it up on Succession. And I think he just won his first Emmy for best lead actor in a series. Like in the last last one or two years, he just won like best lead actor in a series for playing the patriarch of the family in succession. So he's getting his biggest critical adulations in his career right now at this point in his career. The dude's awesome. I just, I think he's great. I'm glad you brought him up. All right, next up. Uh, we've got Isaac Patton who writes, look back, which superhero death holds more gravitas? Tony Stark's death in Endgame with Pepper saying you can rest now or Wolverine's death in Logan with X-23 calling him daddy. Woo, that's a good one. That's a really, really good one. And I'm going to say Logan had the more powerful death. And I'll tell you why. Logan's death to me was far more powerful for the same reason that Peter Parker's death in Avengers Infinity War when he got snapped away isn't a part of this conversation. You see, I don't want to go, Mr. Stark. See, that could have been a pretty powerful scene and it could have been on a list that we talk about most powerful, most gravitas deaths and blah, 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 except that it wasn't all that powerful because we knew he was just coming back, right? Like we knew, we know he's coming back. We already, there were more Spider-Man movies planned. He's coming back. Like, Oh, he's dying right now, but he'll be back very quickly. The Logan death for me carried infinitely more power. Not because Hugh Jackman acted circles around Robert Downey Jr. Not at all. Robert Downey Jr. acted the hell out of that scene. Like that whole thing as after he's done the snap and he's barely conscious and he's looking at Pepper and it's like just without words, just the look on his face, his performance in that was awesome. But it's because when Wolverine dies in Logan, you knew we're saying goodbye to this iteration of Wolverine. This is the end of the road. This is the last time, barring maybe some fun little cute cameo somewhere, but this is the last time that we're going to see Hugh Jackman as Wolverine, as Logan, as the old knucklehead. You know? When Tony Stark dies in Avengers Endgame, it's a great scene. Absolutely, it's a great scene. But it didn't carry that weight because I don't believe for a moment that we're not going to see him back again. 
I totally believe we're going to see him back again. But John, I heard in an interview where he went, yeah, 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 I get it. That's all nice and everything. He'll be back. And with the rate that, you know, Marvel undeads their characters so quickly and so rapidly, you know, it's, I joke about it, but it's the Marvel cinematic fake death universe. Um, so it was a powerful, Tony dying was a powerful scene. It was a strong scene. It was a moving scene. But it didn't have anywhere near the power to me of the death of Logan in the movie Logan because you knew this was our goodbye. You knew this was our goodbye. He had played this role for over 20 years. I mean, it's so funny to think about it. Everybody whined and complained when they first cast him as Wolverine. He's too tall. He's a Broadway song and dance man. We don't want him as Wolverine. And now nobody can even imagine anybody else other than him. Play so much so that even though he's played the role for like 20 years, people are still begging him, Hugh, please come back and play Wolverine one more time. Please come. But it, it carried that weight because I think everybody in the theaters, everybody in the theaters knew when he was in that forest and dying with X-23 there, we knew we as the audience were saying goodbye. I just don't, and this never had, I think maybe some people had that experience with Tony Stark's death, but I think there's a lot of people like myself and a bunch of others where we're just looking at it as a very, very good, wonderfully acted scene, but no more than that because yeah, we're going to see him again. And if we don't, then that just adds to how much of a shame it is that Marvel has so diluted the idea of it, of death in their movies that when a character dies, we don't actually believe they're gone. We don't actually believe they're dead. They're going to be back any minute now. I mean, actually start the stopwatch. They're going to be back any second now, you know? So if, if by some stretch, and I don't believe it is for a second, but if by some stretch we are never going to see Tony Stark being played by Robert Downey Jr. again, which I don't believe that for a minute, but if that turns out to be true, that becomes a real casualty of the fact that Marvel, and I love Marvel, but you know, that Marvel has faked death so many times that a lot of us watching it just went, oh, this is a great scene, but of course he'll be back. And so that's why I would say that the Logan death carried a lot more weight. Anyway, that's just my take on it. Uh, thanks for asking, Isaac. I appreciate it, man. Next up, an anonymous viewer writes, I don't know if anybody mentioned it, but Jungle Cruise is essentially the Hollywoodized version of an Oscar-nominated film from Columbia, Embrace of the Serpent, dumbed down and stripped from its spiritual elements and anti-colonialist message. I'll be honest with you, I've never even heard of the movie. Embrace of the Serpent. Hold on a second, let me see if I can look this up here. Uh, Embrace of the Serpent. So, it is a 2015 film. Um, that was indeed nominated for an Academy Award. Let me see if I can find the awards here. It was nominated for one Oscar, Best Foreign Language Film of the Year. Let me see if I can bring up the image here a little bit bigger. Oh, I totally recognize the poster. I totally recognize the poster, but I don't see it. Um, I don't know, man. I mean, that that movie is so uniquely Dwayne The Rock Johnson that maybe it, it carries the same shell of the story. But I have a hard time imagining that that movie I was just that movie poster I was just looking at had any of the DNA or personality that that um, 
Jungle Cruise had. I don't know. Again, I don't remember watching it, though. So there's that. That's an interesting thing to bring up, man. I appreciate that, Anonymous. All right. Next up, we got Majestic Thing writes. Hey, John or Rob or both. It seems to me there is too much an- animosity within some fan communities. Take Star Wars, for example. I believe movies slash TV should be viewed subjectively and not with entitlement if a sequel or TV episode is not created their way. Well, listen, Majestic Thing, that's been a huge topic of a conversation in our circles for a couple of years now. Um, a few years ago, I mean, I guess you could say there's always been like a degree of entitlement amongst fandom. But in the last couple of years is where you really see that the whole entitlement thing catch on. It's like, I didn't like the way they did that movie. Make it again. Only this time do it the way I want you to do it. Like, listen, I watch movies that I hate, but I don't want them to redo the movie. You know, artists got together, made a movie and they made it theirs. I either like it or I don't like it. And that's all fair and good. I mean, hell, I hate. I'm a big Star Wars guy, but I hated Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. I personally hated that movie. Not everybody did, but I did. But you're not going to see me crying about it going, remake it and take that one back. No, it's just, it, it, it really is. And listen, I'm sure you and I and everybody who's a fan of stuff, I'm sure we've all exhibited traits of entitlement as fans. We should be the ones to get to see what happens. Um, it happens. But we all have these faults and we have others but yeah that has been a big topic of conversation that we need to get rid of the entitlement out of fandom watch something appreciate it or don't appreciate it comment talk about it and then move on you know like for instance with the amount that i hated rise of skywalker you don't hear me on my channel every single day bringing up rise of skywalker i I mean if somebody asks me about it i answer the question but you don't see me bringing up Rise of Skywalker every single freaking day, right? But I mean, there are people that I know, and I'm not talking on YouTube or anything, but I'm just people that I know that hated something like a year ago, and they still talk about it every single freaking day. All they do is whine and complain and cry about it. It's like, I get it. You hated that thing. I get it. It was clear to me that you hate that thing a thousand times ago. But dude, I didn't just ask you about it. Nobody around, nobody in the room here brought it up. We're tired of hearing you talk about it. Move on. Just move. And moving on doesn't mean you suddenly approve of that thing you hate. Not at all. We all know you still hate that thing. But can you move on and talk about something you like now? Talk about something that you like now. And if I ask you what you think about that thing, then feel free to unload again. But nobody in here is asking you to bring it up again. And it's just... Uh, but it is a problem in fandom. You know what? We're all probably guilty of it to one degree or another too. So it's what it is. Majestic thing. All right. Next up, uh, Andres Moran writes, Hey John, I want to apologize. I think I made a bad or inappropriate joke in the question. Oh, I had one earlier today. Yeah, I got through, uh, inappropriate. Uh, hope it doesn't make it into the show. It did. Uh, don't drink and tip kids. Regrets will come when sober. Anyways, I saw you and Robert talking about the subjectivity of film and, And a clear example for me is how I can't stand the movie There Will Be Blood. Even though almost everyone loves it, and I hate to admit it, but uh, I've never seen Blade Runner, Uh, I worry I'll hate it, so I know it makes no sense, but still can't watch it. Well, listen, man, look, you guys know I love There Will Be Blood. I love that. But art hits us all in different ways. Art, specifically movies, are experiential events. We engage with the art 
and it creates an experience. And the experience we have with it will vary from person to person because we all have different tastes. We all have different backgrounds. We all have different histories. We all have different mental makeups. We all have, we're all completely different creatures. And so when that art hits us, it's going to create a different experience for me than it is for you. Now, if a movie's really good, then it'll create a positive experience for a lot of people. But if it doesn't create a positive experience for you, that doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means that art was not capable of creating a positive experience for you. It may have created a positive one for me. It may have created a positive one for the other five people in the room. But if it didn't for you, then it didn't for you. Art is subjective. I've said this before. I will say it a million times because there are still some people out there who just don't get it. For something to be objectively true, it has to be, by scientific definition, it has to be empirically measurable. It has to be empirically measurable. And anything that cannot be empirically measured cannot be considered objective truth. For example, if I want to say that the distance between me and this camera, which I don't have that camera on, between me and this camera in front of me, is, I don't know, uh, I'm going to make up a number, 29 inches, right? I can say that, but that is provable. There is empirical measurement. As a matter of fact, don't ask me why I have this, but, well, no, I mean, it's my office. I need a measuring tape to measure a lot of shit. I got a measuring tape right here. I'll tell you exactly how far, let me see, the camera is to me. Okay, right there. It is... What did I say? I wasn't too far off. It is 25 inches. The camera is 25 inches. That's not a guess. That's not a feeling. That's not an opinion. I was just able to, at this moment, for where exactly I am right now, my face is 25 inches from the camera. That's measurable. It's empirical. It's factual. It's not an opinion. It's not a guess. It is objectively true. For me to say my face is 25 inches from the camera, that is objectively true because it is empirically provable. It took the sprinter 9.8776 seconds to run that 100 meter dash. That is empirically provable. That tree is 18 feet, seven and a quarter inches. That is empirically provable. There are units of measurement that we can use to remove any opinion from that and actually measure it and then state it as fact. I am 215 pounds. That's not a guess. That's not a feeling. That is what I weigh. I can get on a scale and there's an empirical measurement that will tell me how much I weigh. It is evidence. It is proof irrefutable proof that is what objective truth is i think that color blue is nicer than that color blue prove it you can't there's nothing to measure there's no empirical units of measurement that you can take to say that shade of blue is better than that shade of blue i got blue eyes here we go this shade of blue is better than this shade of blue. Says who? 
That's opinion. And whenever you get into opinion, whenever you get into something that cannot be empirically measured in empirical units, you are now in the realm of opinion. And as long as it's opinion, it's subjective. And movies, there is no empirical unit of measurement to prove as fact that one movie is better than another. Well, the critic rating, no, 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 that's just the subjective opinions of a bunch of people. Collecting a bunch of subjective opinions does not make an objective truth. And it still boggles my mind that there are people who don't understand this. So that's why, like when I do my show, I say, this movie's great. Well, the subtext of that is obviously whenever I say this movie's great, I am saying this movie's great in my personal opinion, obviously in my opinion. When I say, oh my God, that movie was shite. Well, that's me saying that, of course. I don't need to repeat. I don't have to preface every single thing I say with, in my opinion, this movie is shite because it, that's just understood because all film is subjective. And that's why if somebody comes to me and says, I hate the original Star Wars, I can just go, I don't get mad about it. You see people getting mad. You don't like the movie I like? You like a movie I hate? If somebody comes to me and say they hate the original Star Wars, I go, man, that sucks. I wish you liked it. Oh, well, you don't. That's okay. It's just a movie. You had your subjective experience with it. I had mine. But anyway, there's that. All right, let's move on. Next up, we got Initial D's rights. One of two. Hey, John and Rob, and obviously Rob's not here. To Rob's point, my wife had no interest in seeing Suicide Squad from trailers. So, so Rob made a point, I think it was yesterday uh, or a couple days ago when he said, that, you know, the marketing for, we were talking about this, the marketing for Suicide Squad was not all that great. Because I have a buddy of mine uh, in Nashville who told me, oh man, that movie looked like garbage to me. But, you know, I was with so-and-so who wanted to see it. So we watched it and I love the movie. It's great. Anyway, uh, hey, JC and Rob, to Rob's point, my wife had no interested no interest in seeing the Suicide Squad from the trailers, not even on HBO Max. But we went to the theater Monday evening and she was surprised. She really liked it. The marketing was definitely lacking. Also, was only six people in the theater, and four of them was us. The whole building was empty. It was eerie. There was one girl at the concession stand, and no one checked our ticket. We literally could have just walked in without paying. We didn't see one other employee. Well, I mean, if this was a Monday, that's not terribly surprising to hear, I suppose. If it's a Monday, that's not a big movie-going night. But yeah, that's unfortunate. But yeah, again, and, and we did talk about that when we were talking about the reasons why the nine reasons why Suicide Squad, let's call it what it is, flopped at the box office. It's a magnificent movie. Magnificent. But it flopped. And one of the big reasons for that is the marketing was not all that great. The marketing did not get people interested in getting to the theater. And the marketing's got to do a better job, man. Marketing's got to do a better job. Thanks for writing that in, Initial. Hope you had a good time at it. Uh, Initial also writes, I forgot to say the Suicide Squad was our first movie back in the theater. It's been uh, it's been since The Gentleman, which was like one of my favorite movies last year. In January of 2020, it felt good to be back. My daughter was actually the one begging us to see the Suicide Squad in the theater. She wanted that to be her first movie back, and she loved it. Dude, that's actually not a bad little bookend there. The Gentleman being the last one you saw, which was great. I love The Gentleman. And now the first one back being Suicide Squad, that's great. May I highly encourage checking out Free Guy this weekend as well. By the way, some people ask me, why aren't you telling people to see um, Don't Breathe 2? Hey, listen, I've told people I'm excited about seeing Don't Breathe 2, but I can't recommend a movie I haven't seen yet. 
I haven't seen Don't Breathe 2. There was no press screening invite to me for that one. I honestly don't know if anybody got one. Maybe other people did, but there were up until yesterday, there was no reviews up. So I don't even know if anybody saw it. So I, the reason I haven't been recommending, I've only been recommending go to the theaters this weekend, see a double feature of Free Guy and Suicide Squad. Um, by the way, Respect looks really good too, but I haven't seen Respect. So I need to go and see Respect as well. But I, I would love to recommend Don't Breathe 2 because I love the first movie. But I haven't seen it, so I, I can't recommend it at this point. All right, next up. Glad you guys had a good time, Initial. Next up, an anonymous viewer writes, Hey, John, I don't think studios realize how much the piracy still has huge effect, especially outside the USA. Oh, they know. They understand. Uh, I don't support, but I can't blame anyone who pirated Jungle Cruise or the Suicide Squad at the day of release. I blame the studio who gave them an easy option. I mean, that's been another one of the things about one of the big problems and the theater industry has brought this up a lot. One of the big problems with the day and date release of movies on a streaming service is that, you know, a pirated copy of a movie is usually this piece of crap. Hide it under my jacket. Oh, and you see the head of the guy in front of the guy and you hear people eating popcorn. And it's a, not such a good image. And I mean, who wants to watch? Most people don't want to see a movie like that. Some people do. Most people don't. But now, with day and date releases, you can get a beautiful, pristine digital copy of that movie. Mwah, chef's kiss. Perfect. And get it and upload it to the internet. Just like that. And it's it's something they're they're trying to figure out how to navigate around, especially in the international territories. You're right about that, man. Or right, next up, Pelican Mike writes. Hey, John. Nolan is obviously a big theater enthusiast. Yes, he is. Do you think that precludes him from doing something like a limited series? Not saying a series would be better than a movie, but would his loyalty to theater stop him from going that route? Well, here's the thing, Pelican Mike. I, what I think would prevent him from that is not his loyalty to theaters, but is his preference for the art of the movie. Because... The, there's an art to making a movie, a completely self-contained, full story told in roughly two hours, 90 minutes, two and a half hours, whatever you want. But telling a complete tale, introducing your characters, introducing the conflict, having it all flesh out and then building up to a crescendo where it all comes to resolution, hopefully developing or delivering a satisfying conclusion for the audience. Look at something like Die Hard, right? The art of the movie, here is your story. Not come back for six or seven weeks in order to get the story, but here is your story. I think it's not just the theatrical experience that Christopher Nolan is in love with. He's in love with the art of the movie. And that's no disrespect at all to, you know, series. There's no disrespect to that at all. It's just a different thing. And his passion happens to lie with that art of storytelling, the art of telling it all in one contained package. And it takes, that's why I always say it takes, it's a lot harder to make a good movie than it is to make a good series. Because you have to do all of that work. You have to introduce us to the characters, make us like the characters, give the characters depth and dimension, introduce us to what their conflict is going to be, flesh out that conflict, have the main narrative then play out, and then bring it all to a satisfying conclusion. And you got to do it all in two hours. Go. Whereas so many TV shows these days, people tell me, oh yeah, this show's great. Eh, you got to kind of get through the first four episodes, really? So I have to basically waste 
four hours of my time before it starts to get good. Whereas in the art of the movie, it takes a, it takes a lot. I believe it just takes more skill. I believe it takes more skill for storytellers to tell it in that medium. Uh, that's just, you know, my point of view. That's just my opinion. But I think if anything was going to keep, if, if anything was going to keep Christopher Nolan from going the series route, I think it's not his love of theaters. It's his love of the art form of movies. And so that would be my guess. I don't know. Clearly, I don't know. But that would be my guess at any rate. Great question, Pelican Mike. Well, well asked. All right. Next up, we got Chris who writes. Hey, John, love all that you do. Thank you, Chris. My question is, do you think we will ever see another DC film with Batman and or Superman, specifically in the DCEU, i.e. Batfleck, Batfleck or a recast of his Batman and or Henry Cavill? I'm curious as to why Warner Brothers hasn't said much on it. Um, why? Sh- well, first of all, why should they say anything about it? They, they don't have any responsibility to say anything about their future plans at all. And I think they've learned from their past mistakes about talking too much too early and then having to have egg on their face and walk back things that they said. So they're never going to say anything. Do I believe we're going to see that again? Yes. I, I believe we're going to see Batman and Superman back in the DCEU. I don't know if that's going to be this year. I don't know. Well, it's definitely not going to be this year. I don't know if that's going to be in 2022 or 2023 or 2024 or 2025, but do I believe it'll eventually be back and they'll have a Batman and a Superman, not in some other universe, but actually as a part of this mainline universe? I do. Whether it's Henry Cavill playing it, I don't know. I still have hope that Henry Cavill's going to come back, but uh, we'll have to wait and see. That's my take on it. Anyway, Chris, thanks for asking, man. Next up. Uh, Joel C 81 writes one of five. Ooh, buckle in. Good day, John and Robert. And obviously Robert's not here right now. Uh, a few years ago, I saw an awesome movie directed by Emilio Estevez called the way that's the one with his own dad. Charlie Sheen is in that. And it's about the dude. So Emilio Estevez plays Charlie Sheen's son. He's not actually in a whole ton of the movie, but, and his son dies and he had gone on this like pilgrimage, this, this famous hike. I can't remember the name of it. And so Charlie Sheen decides, the father decides to go and do that hike that his son was going to do. Anyway, it's really, really good. It's really good. Anyway, a few years ago, I saw an awesome movie directed by Emilio Estevez called The Way. It's about a man, Martin Sheen, who builds, who leads a dull life, motivated only by his work and his golf handicap. Sadly, his adventurous son dies Um on a pilgrimage in Spain called the Camino de Santiago. That's what they, I was trying to remember what that was. A 500-mile hike across Spain. Sheen flies uh, to over. Sheen flies to over to collect his son's remains, but he finds himself inspired to fulfill his son's dream of completing the Camino. It's truly a heart-touching story. Um, that I highly recommend this movie, the way inspired me to go on the same adventure. I flew from Australia to Europe and hiked 500 miles. That's awesome, dude, along the Camino. And it absolutely changed my life. I will never, never forget the lessons I learned along the way. You don't choose a life. You live one. That's such a great line. You don't choose a life. You live one. Uh, today marks the fourth anniversary of the start of this epic adventure on this journey. I met a girl from California. I guess we got along really well because she moved to Australia. And now uh, live together and have a son. My question is, has there ever been a movie uh, that had such an impact on you or Rob, and Rob's not here, that inspired you to do something life-changing, epic, and maybe a little bit crazy? All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, man. That's a great story. And by the way, the, the movie The Way is fantastic. 
absolutely take uh, Joel C81's recommendation and check it out if you have not. It's really a nice, nice movie. Very, very well done. Um, it's weird to say because to me, every movie I've ever watched stirs me or influences me or inspires me to something. You know, even terrible movies, because maybe they'll inspire me for the wrong things, but even terrible movies, movies have that impact. It's one of the reasons why I love movies so much. One of the, the movies I saw that really shook me, there are two. There are two that I can think about really in the last 10 years that have just like made me not go and do something crazy but have truly made me want to examine who I am and be better. One of them is um, the Emma Stone film, The Help. That, that movie just overjoyed me so much and it made me want to look at my life and say, it's not enough that I'm not part of the problem. I think for too much of my life, and I think for too many of us, we just, our idea of being a good person is just don't be part of the problem. I know I lived that way for a long time. Just don't be part of the problem. But that was a movie that really motivated me to think, to look at my life in terms of how am I a part of the solution? Am I acting in any way that I'm a part of the solution? And I think that was around the time Look, I don't talk a lot about what Anne and I do on our show and stuff. I, I only address it here because it's it's relevant to the conversation you brought up, you brought up. But that's around the time that Anne and I started getting involved in food drives, and we started doing uh, like our um, our annual uh, adopt a family that we you know we try to promote every year to get more of you guys to get involved in adopt a family. It's an incredible experience. You should that we started getting more involved in food kitchens and we started to get more involved in family emergency centers. And we, we started to get more involved in that. And then another movie years later was a documentary about Mr. Rogers of all, of all people. Um, I, I can't remember if it was called, uh, beautiful day in the neighborhood or won't you be my neighbor? Anyway, not the Tom Hanks scripted movie, but the documentary. And when I saw that movie, Mr. Rogers, I mean, forgive the language. Mr. Rogers is a fucking G man. Mr. Rogers is the man. He's the man. All right. You go and watch that documentary and you don't tell me you look at yourself like a sniveling little worm after seeing like, like the life that Mr. Ro how he lived his life and what he believed and how he showed love to everybody around him. But I remember coming out of that Mr. Rogers documentary, I remember, I think I made a social media post about it. I said, there are some movies that change the way you see the world. Great. No, this is what I said. Great movies make you change the world. Truly exceptional movies make you want to change yourself or they change you. Truly exceptional movies change you. Great movies will change the way you see the world. Truly exceptional movies will change you. And I feel like everybody who watched that movie couldn't possibly have come out of it without being a little bit changed. And it was the movie that spurred a conversation between me and Anne uh, to want to do more in those things that we have been doing. Um, and we we get involved in that stuff behind the scenes. We like we don't do it out on camera or anything like that. But um, 
it's it's but that's what the power of movies do and i'm glad that that movie had that type of a powerful influence over you as well and i'm glad that it led to the results that it gave for you uh uh joel c so thanks for sharing that story man that was really inspiring thanks a lot for that dude all right next up we've got the sock who writes one of two I finally got and beat The Last of Us 2, a truly magnificent game. It only improves on all the things that made the first one great. I was glad she doesn't necessarily just let Abby get away and that you get to beat the shit out of her, um, which makes the blue balls of not getting to kill her a little bit more bearable. Though, it's in fact uh, it's in fact what makes Dinah leaving her at the end all the more sad. Listen, I'll tell you what. I am, everybody knows I'm not the biggest gamer in the world. I mean, I, I love playing my video games. I do, but I'm not like a huge gamer or anything like that. The last of us two is by far and away the greatest storytelling in the greatest narrative story ever told in any video game ever period. It's I, I watched the, I didn't play it through. I watched the, I can't remember how long it was seven, eight, nine, ten 10 hours, whatever it was. I watched the, the, the uh, cutscene movie of it where they also included a lot of the gameplay that told story. So like I said, it ended up being like, maybe it was like 12 hours. I can't remember, but I, I could not stop watching it. I couldn't stop watching it. The overall theme of our actions have consequences not just consequences on ourselves. It was a lesson I think a lot of us need to learn. Our actions don't only have consequences on ourselves. Our actions have consequences on people around us. So to me, it was two things. It was um, an abject lesson in our actions have consequences. Because, I mean, you can't go around in The Last of Us 1 as Joel and Ellie killing untold numbers of people and then not think there's not any repercussions from that. That, oh, the one random guard guy at that one door that you snuck up behind and knifed, that guy had a family. That guy had friends. That guy had a life. That guy had people who loved him. And you can't think about, and what we often do with video games is that we run around and kill all these people, but every one of those people represented a life. And the taking of that life has consequences and repercussions that don't just disappear because you achieve the level goal. And the expression of that in this game, I thought was profound. And then on top of that, the concept of what pain will do even to good people. You know, what does Joker says? Everybody's just one bad day away. What does he say to Batman? It's something along the lines of, you're just one bad day away from being me or something like that, right? Everybody's just one bad day away. And The Last of Us 2 was such an examination of what unbearable pain and loss and grief will do to even the best of people. And I'm just sitting there watching that. I'm like, this is a freaking video game, man. It's a video game. How is it, how is it this good? I just couldn't believe it, man. I just couldn't believe it. All right, listen, we got time for one more here. And the last one we're going to cover right now uh, comes to us from Reese Seifring, who writes, Hey, John, what do you make of the announcement by Adam Aaron, CEO of AMC, that by the end of 2021, all AMC theaters will accept Bitcoin as payment for online ticketing and concession purchases? Times are changing. Thanks. Thanks a lot for that, Marie. Yes, yeah, somebody else asked me about that earlier today. 
Honestly, it's a completely inconsequential piece of information. I mean, for AMC, if you want to get into Bitcoin, take the $10 I give you for a movie ticket and then buy $10 of Bitcoin. There, you've got $10 of Bitcoin. Makes no difference. Um, but I mean, whatever, if, if some, first, listen, the people who I know, I don't know a lot of people, I know a few, but not a lot of people who are really into Bitcoin, but the people I know who are really into Bitcoin are not interested in trading in however small fraction of their Bitcoin for a movie ticket. I just don't personally know anybody that wants to trade in their Bitcoin for a movie ticket. You know what I mean? Even if it's only $10 worth. So I honestly don't know how much this is actually going to be used. And at the end of the day, it's not really all that relevant. You know, whether you're charging $10 in silver pieces or Bitcoin or bills, $10 is $10. I mean, with the possibility, if you're AMC, that if Bitcoin goes up, great. If it has a massive crash like it had not too long ago, not so good. But so it is what it is. It's interesting. It's interesting. I'll say that. It is interesting, but I will be very, very curious to see how many people actually use it because not everybody has Bitcoin. And those that do, I don't think they want to trade any of it in for movie tickets. I don't know. I'd be very, I mean, I might be dead wrong about that, but I will at least be extremely curious to see how that plays out. All right, listen, guys. Uh, we do have a, a couple more questions to go before we're caught up, but we will pick right up where we left off. I mean, we've got uh, Disney Gifts by Bryce, uh, Termina, uh, Pleasantly Obnoxious, and others. Do not worry, guys. We'll pick right up where we left off on tomorrow's John Campia show. And as long as nothing bad happens, it's going to be me, Robert Meyer Burnett, and Aaron Cummings on the show tomorrow. So I hope you guys will join us for that. Okay, guys, listen. Do the four main things, please. Take care of yourselves. Well, how does I say it again? Yes, be smart, be safe, take care of yourselves, and please take care of the people around you. That'll do it for me, guys. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye. <laughs>